We are continuing in our Lenten sermon series on the prophets of ancient Israel who often spoke God's word of judgment against the people for their failure to worship God alone and their failure to carry out the justice that God required of his people. As you can imagine, this did not always endear the prophets to the people of Israel. Sometimes it even cost them their lives. I suspect that one of the reasons that we don't read much of the prophets in our country is that their words do not endear them much to us either. But we ignore their words at our own risk. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Isaiah is 
one of the most complicated books in the entire Bible. Part of the reason for this is that it was written over a period of several hundred years by probably at least three different authors. Most of the first 39 chapters is attributed to the prophet Isaiah of Jerusalem, who lived during the latter half of the 8th century BC, while Jerusalem was facing the, the mighty Assyrian Empire. Chapters 40 through 55 are widely believed to have been written in the middle of the 6th century BC by an anonymous prophet during the exile in Babylon. This prophet assured the people that their time in exile was coming to an end, for God had forgiven their sins and would soon come and save them and return them back from exile in glorious fashion. Then Jerusalem and its temple would be rebuilt and restored to their former glory. Now the final 11 chapters of Isaiah were written after the exiles had returned from Babylon. While well, the timing is difficult to be sure about, it is long enough after the return that many of the religious practices of Israel had been restored. Unfortunately, the great promises made by the prophet of the exile had not turned out quite the way the people were expecting. Their return from exile had not been the glorious and momentous event that they had anticipated, and the city of Jerusalem was still anything but glorious. In fact, it was quite a mess. Living conditions were poor, and the morale among the people was very low. And as a result, the people started looking at only for their own interests, not at all concerned about their neighbor. It was every man for himself. And yet, the people continued to go through the religious motions, diligently performing all of their religious rituals, thinking that somehow it might get God's attention and convince him to act on their behalf. And yet, somehow, they failed to notice the disconnect in their actions. Now, the specific ritual being talked about in our text today is fasting, which was a regular part of the Jewish religious tradition. The problem was that people were participating in these fast days, thinking if they just put on a good show of denying themselves and making themselves appear humble before God, that God would notice them and come and restore the nation to its former glory and them to prosperity. In other words, their fasting had become a means of manipulating God, a sort of ringing of the heavenly bell and expecting the cosmic bellhop to show up at their service. But no matter how hard they rang, God never seemed to notice, and the people were beginning to grumble. Now, we all know something about this, don't we? I mean, haven't we all, at times in our lives, when we were desperate for God to do something for us, that we suddenly became a whole lot more 
religious. You know, we start praying a lot more. We, we show up to church a little more frequently. Maybe we throw a few extra dollars in the offering plate or, or open up our Bibles and read a little bit, all hoping that it might get God's attention. And yet, like the people of Jerusalem, we too can start to grumble when God does not appear to be responding in the manner we would prefer. But God had a bit of an issue with his people and their religious rituals, and I suspect at times God has an issue with us as well. You see, while the people were participating in these fast days, they were also engaging in some rather ungodly behavior, like exploiting their workers and fighting with their neighbors and violating the Sabbath and talking maliciously about one another and ignoring the poor and the hungry in their midst. And so God says to the prophet, these people want me to respond? Well, then shout it out like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and their sin. For day after day they seek me out and seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken my commands. And then God says to the people, you wonder why I don't notice your fasting? Well, how can you expect your voice to be heard on high when it's being drowned out by all the rest of your actions? Can't you see the contradiction in your behaviors? You see, the problem was, was not only that the people had reduced their spiritual life to just an outward display of piety that never touched their hearts, but the people had also compartmentalized their lives, separating them out into different parts, the religious and the professional and the family and the social. And they seemed to believe that the lines separating these parts of their lives were real, so that what happened in one of these areas had little or nothing to do with what happened in the others. They thought, oh sure, we'll give God his due in church and while we're performing our religious duties, but what we do on the rest of our time is our own business. But Almighty God says, uh-uh. All of your time is my business. There are no lines separating what happens in my sanctuary from what happens in your homes, in your offices, or at the gym, or on a date. You see, the real issue here in the end is worship, which is the most important thing we do as God's people. And at its core, fasting is, is really just an act of worship whose purpose is to glorify God by directing our attention and our gratitude to the true bread of life from whom all blessings flow. But our worship is not just relegated to Sundays. 
When Jesus Christ, our entire lives have been claimed by God on the cross, not just Sunday mornings. The great 20th century theologian Karl Barth wrote that Sundays are the days that bind all other days and therefore give them their meaning. Sunday worship is our training ground for the rest of the week. Part of its purpose is to teach us what every other day is supposed to be about. Monday through Saturday is where we live out what we claim to be true here on Sunday. And then we come back to worship Sunday after Sunday to remind ourselves of these truths and to bring our experiences from the week and lay them before God, giving thanks to God for our victories and confessing our failures as we receive God's grace and forgiveness once again. You see, in worship, we renew our vision and our mission so that we might glorify God throughout the coming week with our words and our actions. That's our primary purpose, remember, to glorify God, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. Now, the truth is, all of us at times have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives. And our life of faith is often restricted to Sunday church and grace before meals. And as a result, there's often little connection between what happens in here and what happens out there. And it's amazing how easily we draw lines between what we claim to believe here in worship and how we think and behave throughout the week, as if Jesus is not with us at work or with our families or in the car or in the voting booth or at the grocery store or at the football game or on the golf course. And so we become people who claim that Jesus Christ is Lord while we gossip about other people, while we engage in unethical business practices to make an extra buck, while we drive with road rage, while we hoard all of our resources, while we blow up at the checkout clerk, while we refuse to forgive those who have hurt us even though Christ has forgiven us, while we refuse to engage with people who do not vote the way that we do, while we think only of ourselves and, and do not take care of those in need around us, while we treat other people as something less than human beings made in the image of our Creator God. And God says to us, is this what you call a fast? A day acceptable? to the Lord? During the British struggle against slavery in 1823, Methodist theologian Adam Clark had these words to say to his country. How can any nation pretend to fast or worship God at all 
or profess to believe in the existence of such a being while they carry on the slave trade and traffic in the souls, blood, and bodies of men. O oh, ye most flagitious of knaves and worst of hypocrites, cast off at once the mask of your religion and deepen not your endless perdition by professing the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ while ye continue in this traffic. Isaiah could not have said it any better. But you know, I wonder what the prophet would have to say to our nation where so many people profess the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some even want to call it a Christian nation. And yet, where we have the most violent society on the planet. Where the gap between the rich and the poor has grown to staggering proportions over the last 40 years. Where we demonize and cancel anyone who doesn't agree with our positions or support our social agendas where the color of a person's skin still largely determines the opportunities available to them in life and the ways they will be treated throughout their life. Where we have the highest military budget in the world, but we have 38 million people living in poverty, including 11 million children. Where when the money gets tight, the first thing we usually cut is aid to the poor and the jobless and the mentally and physically disabled people with no security net in their lives. Where we complain endlessly about paying taxes out of our hard-earned income, and yet then we come to church on Sundays and proclaim that everything that we have is but a gift of God's grace, which we have done nothing to deserve, that we have been blessed so that we might become a blessing and that we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And yet somehow we fail to see the contradictions, forgetting that Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Now, to be sure, the church can never be confused or equated with our nation or any nation. <laughs> Jesus has little interest in the lines that we draw on maps, and the body of Christ is made up of people of all nations and all races. But so often the, the church in our country has looked and behaved a, a whole lot more like American culture than the body of Christ. But Jesus is, is calling the church to let our whole lives be an act of worship and not just to tip our hats to God on Sundays. And according to our text, true worship is to fight against injustice and to fight for the oppressed and the less fortunate is to provide food for the hungry and shelter to the stranger. It's to put away the accusing finger and put an end to malicious talk. It's to give clothes to those who have none and, and, and care for those who are in need. 
Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, it is to do everything in word or in deed in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is true worship. Worship is whatever we do that, that brings glory to God. It's, it's living outside of ourselves and putting the needs of others before our own. It's, it's having a life of spiritual integrity where what we say we believe here matches what we say and do throughout the week as we seek to love God and love our neighbor. Or in the words of the prophet Micah, it's, it's to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. And therefore, the acid test of our worship is not, what did it do for me, but what did it inspire me to do for others in the name of Jesus? And therefore, according to Isaiah, true worship begins when we walk out those doors. And according to our text, when we do these things, when when we live a, a life of worship that glorifies God, then, then we become beacons of light shining in this dark world as the light of Christ shines right through us. And God promises us that, that he will be Emmanuel, that God will be with us to, to provide for us and to guide us and to strengthen us along the way. For when we bring glory to God through daily acts of service, through deeds of kindness and generosity and compassion and forgiveness, we actually become more like Jesus. And therefore, we become more alive. In the words of the prophet, we become like well-watered gardens, like streams whose waters never fail. Remember, Jesus said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. And when we live out there, what we claim to believe in here, when our entire lives become an act of worship, then that living water flows right through us. And we become vessels of God's grace to a world that is just dying of thirst. That is our mission. And it is my prayer that independent Presbyterian church would always be the kind of place where that river of living water just keeps overflowing its banks and giving life to everyone who comes into this place and to the neighborhood around us and to the city of Birmingham and to the United States of America, even to the ends of the earth in the name of Jesus. May it be so. Amen.